0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Altmed podcast. Uh, Before we jump into today's episode, just a quick reminder to hit like and subscribe wherever you're listening to or watching this podcast. Um, We hope you're getting a lot out of it. Um, But without further ado, got my co-host as usual, Mitch Kurtz in the seat behind me beside beside me virtually
1: and yeah but it is a new it is a new background for all those people being washing at home that in the is last true. it's it's a good keep it mixed up it looks a bit more profesh um, it's a it's one thing. Profesh.
0: um but not quite <laughs> as professional as the background of our delightful guest that we have on today it is none other than the founder of indicator technologies and one of the best agronomists in the country it is of course tom Forrest. welcome tom
2: G'day. Thanks very much for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to chat with both of you.
1: Yeah, it's always a pleasure to chat with you as well. We love having the man of the forest um, amongst us, <laughs> as I'm sure many people talk about. Um, but yeah, we would love, for those who aren't familiar with you just yet, we'd love for you to give a little bit of a background on yourself and how you got into the space and where you're at at the moment.
2: Cool. Well, actually, I'll uh the title the man of the forest i'll I'll start with a little bit of a joke but the true story um it's my my mother her maiden name is actually woods so i've got Woods (laughs) and forest so it it was very likely that i was put here to grow trees (laughs) yeah Um, nice (laughs) um no but seriously okay so my my name is tom forest um i am a, a certified horticulturalist who I've been working in the protected cropping space for around seven years now. Uh, I have finished university where I was studying plant biology and uh, got a cannabis project off the ground at that university. We secured funding uh, and then we designed, supplied, and I even got my white card and helped install grow rooms at that university, which was the the partner site for the World Health Organization. Uh, That was back in 2016, 2017, in the early days of legalization. Following that, I started getting more and more inquiries for equipment and consulting and worked with more than 50 different groups across Australia and New Zealand, uh, consulting primarily around facility design uh, and also helping with equipment supply. And more recently, I've co-founded a cannabis cultivation facility and farm over in New Zealand called Puro. And I guess um, my sort of most recent little accreditation, which I'm quite proud of is I was the, the first recipient of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellowship. So they, they sent me around the world over 2019. I did more than hundred flights, visited 10 different countries and, uh, visited, spent time at more than 50 cannabis cultivation facilities to publish a white paper on cannabis agronomy and a short film as well.
1: Amazing. I know Andrew's got a little line he wants to talk about in terms of what we've had on the show. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, no,
0: definitely. We, um, and I have seen that video, it's great. And yeah, we're definitely gonna unpack that whole trip. But I suppose before we dive into all of that, can you tell us about, um, you, you mentioned that you were you had inquiries for c- consultation and, and that sort of thing. Which would have led to, I think, the founding of Indicated Technologies. What, um, what do you do there? What, what kind of um, space are you playing in with that?
2: It's, um, it, it was kind of born out of necessity. So I was working with a, a wholesale importer and distributor, uh, Stealth Garden Wholesale, who uh, had a, a very strong history in bringing uh, protected cropping equipment to Australia, and my company was set up just to, to cater to that consulting and equipment supply into the cannabis space. So our main role and the equipment was focused around horticultural lighting, uh, dehumidifiers uh, and cannabis specific equipment. So things like the Mobius trimming, uh, buckers, millers, uh, and then even uh, some smart sensing technology that uses AI to predict weather in the fields and things. So it's it's a commercial cannabis supply company and in honesty, a lot of it came down to people wanting quotes that they may not realistically look to fill for years due to the holdups with the Office of Drug Control and the licensing process in Australia. And so rather than spending all the time quoting, I had to start charging for my time and set up the consulting fees. And and that was, I guess, how the, my relationship with Puro began. They were one of my earliest clients and I I really saw value in what they were trying to do and I really liked the team and the sites. So I, I, uh, long story short, got myself a, a firmer relationship with that group and, um, they put my position in as cultivation director. Uh, and so rather than being a consultant to that group, I was able to really spearhead that project. And I'm proud to say that they're, they're now the largest cultivator of medicinal cannabis, uh, in Australia and New Zealand and, are uh, really pioneering the industry over in New Zealand. So it's good to see. Uh, when when projects come to fruition whether it's in equipment supply or actually getting farms off the ground so it's been it's been an exciting uh, whirlwind adventure and wearing a few hats at the same time.
0: Well I, it's it's and certainly um, one which we've observed in pictures I follow you on LinkedIn recommend anyone watching or listening to this to do the same some of those photos that you posted from Puro uh, Ground Zero the Cannabis farms sprawling right up to the cliff top. It is about as picturesque. I, I think they should be putting that kind of imagery on the one hundred percent pure New Zealand ads, but um, <laughs> but uh, pure New Zealand perhaps. But um, giving them a bit of a plug. But no, it looks it looks great what they're doing over there. And um, yeah, I'm sure it's much to unpack about what's happening on the other side of the uh, the Tasman here. But um, perhaps I'm, I'm interested. I'm sure some of the perspectives that people would have been leaning on you for with regard to your consulting would have been born out of, uh, the global insights that you would have gathered in the, um, the Winston Churchill fellowship that you did. So you would have seen across different continents, um, and, and, and with different, uh, legal frameworks, um, so many different things, so many different types of equipment, um, trends in the market. You're able to just, I mean, I feel like we could talk about that fellowship for six hours and have the longest form podcast known to, to anyone. But yeah, if you can take us through some of the highlights, Uh, I have a feeling Metallica and and Wu-Tang featured at one point, but I'll I'll let you uh, talk to that.
2: Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was, in honesty, a bit of a dream come true of the Churchill trust kind of lets you select where you want to go, who you want to meet and who you think are um, worthwhile to spend time with. And they, they they funded me for an eight week trip and you get a golden ticket essentially a piece of paper from the premier and from the churchill trust saying let this person into your facility let them film um and that's quite unheard of in the cannabis sector so i, I put my life savings into it and and traveled for around four and a half months uh i saw everything from highly um, advanced automated the, the aurora sky facility which was sort of a million square foot or six hundred thousand square feet of canopy uh, ultimate levels of automation Uh, controlled environments with super sealed brooms that are that sort of gmp standard of flower production right through to slovenian fields of organic broadacre hemp uh, cultivated with traditional methods and using old world war ii machinery that they'd retrofitted into harvesters and that kind of thing and then i guess there was for my own sort of personal interest to look at the the cannabis culture around the world as well so spending time with people like jody emery and Raphael meshlam and going to 420 events in Vancouver and then, yeah, certain groups, uh, a, a great man, Kota Myri, uh, he took me to meet Wu-Tang Clan in Copenhagen uh, when we are just after going to see the Aurora facility uh, in Denmark and then uh, some uh, fantastic group of friends in the Netherlands took me to see Metallica and hang out with them as well. So I kind of joked about the whole experience that oh, flowers will get you anywhere in life and that... Uh, <laughs> It was a a really amazing experience. And sort of by the end of 2019, I'd been travelling for months. I was pretty frazzled and really wishing to spend a bit more time at home. And then Melbourne 2020 happened. And so I got to spend a lot of time at home. So I I was really quite fortunate to be able to do the fellowship while that level of global travel was so accessible. And I really feel for the Churchill Trust recipients now who are not, able to complete their fellowship until we get to some level of normalcy in the world again
0: yeah totally well you, you timed it beautifully um i think um just on your return in 2019 i know that it can sometimes feel as though we've had a cannabis industry here for a while um in australia but and then you know you wake up on another day you're like My goodness this is so new this is so nice and when you got back from your fellowship what were your general perceptions about where we were comparative to the rest of the world at that point in time
2: i have to be careful not to talk too much shit about federal government authorities but i was very frustrated with the the progress of the office of drug control uh and the the speed which our industry had the ability to grow it was positioned in a way where I don't think it was conducive to industry growth or mum and pop companies coming to play. So I was a little bit jaded, to be honest. It's, it's amazing now to see pioneers that have just been knocking at that door consistently for years and making an effort to, to try to get this industry off the ground. But after seeing the the progress in Canada where groups are able to become microprocessors, there's a, there's a real ability for someone to grow and then they can sell their product into a recreational space or produce it as a medicine into a medicinal space but cannabis is treated like an agricultural commodity not like a dangerous plant whereas in Australia and I think to a lesser extent in New Zealand as well there is still this uh, dangerous plant mentality and I guess the the frustration was really epitomized recently I was on a trip to Tasmania and there's a few groups in Tassie that are doing really good things in the cannabis space here but their facilities are the, the dual layer fencing, the, the security, the blah, 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 all the Office of Drug Control security requirements. And next door to that, they have the poppy fields, which has the, the morphine and the theobromine, I think it is, um, behind maybe a barbed wire fence. And that, that juxtaposition of cannabis being built into a fortress or like a prison style facility next to a poppy field that's got literally less than zero security. That, that was really frustrating to see. So it is, I know there is uh, movements in Australia to make the industry more open and more available. And there is more prescriptions being issued, which naturally gains momentum. Mm. But I guess as we've, we've still got a long way to go and we can look at all these different countries around the world and figure out a framework that actually allows the industry to grow quickly and sort of take advantage of the 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 industry, the jobs, the economic growth as well as the the patient benefit that exists
0: yeah, uh, one yeah. Day that. I, no i completely um yeah I, I i wasn't aware that perhaps security infrastructure requirements for some of those legal um you know opium farms were um were less stringent than cannabis but you know whether <laughs> giving um you know the most uh beneficial uh, interpretation of the way in which government and the federal government has gone about regulating medicinal cannabis I mean perhaps you could say that it's inadvertent but there are just inherent um, contradictions in the regulation which just have not yet been addressed and any efforts to address them seem to be uh, <laughs> always up against the um, the underpinning ideology of, of conservative governments and And I I look to the Office of Drug Control. I I know that everyone um, that I've had dealings with there and that others would have in the industry, from what I understand, they're just hopelessly under-resourced. And that in itself is a statement of how much of a priority this industry is. Um, And of course, there's just so much economic benefit that we could be deriving if we stepped up to the plate as as a as a leader in Asia Pacific, but um, I think we're still still a long way off being there, and it's it's interesting getting your view on how um, we certainly appear that way as compared to the rest of um, maybe the OECD countries that you, you might have visited.
1: In saying that, how do you see the difference between Australia and New Zealand in in you know in the ANZ kind of space?
2: I think New Zealand's already taking a bit more of a progressive approach. Uh, the Ministry of Health, for example, is, is issuing licences a, a lot more quickly than the Office of Drug Control. I know with Bureau it was around uh, 11 and a half weeks from submission of application to licence to cultivate being granted. Uh, there's a lot more open correspondence uh, between the Ministry of Health and the, the industry. The New Zealand Medical Cannabis Council is a really good lobbying uh, voice that's it's got all of the major players in the sector over there they've got them all in a room together and they're working to interact with the ministry of health and the federal government to to progress the industry Um, I I think you you would have seen the referendum there recently yeah a framework that was as good as anything I've seen worldwide it it took into account uh, harmonization it took into account indigenous populations it took into account adult use markets, recreational, even looking into the future of nutraceutical, cosmetic, food and beverage. And that that referendum being shot down by such a small margin. And there's some serious questions about sort of who funded the Say No to Dope campaigns and things that I won't necessarily go into today. <laughs> but, it, um, yeah, it was the Church of Scientology. Yeah, riddle me that one. Um, wow. But... It's very frustrating to see they're, they're on the on the cusp of having uh, a really world class framework and industry and, and New Zealand, they, they're bad above their weight when it comes to commodities. Look at the, the Zespri model for kiwi fruit, um, Marlborough, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, they, they've got oh honey is a bit of a controversial one at the moment, but you, you look at what they do in an agricultural sector for a very small island population, they're um, they're definitely sort of batting outside of their weight. Sorry, I'll just give you a look. I keep looking sideways. My puppy has just woken up. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, our good dog. <laughs> 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 uh,
0: massive, massive. Very cute. Why, For all of our listeners, this is why um, I, I should recommend from time to time you should uh, watch this podcast because we get these amazing cameos. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah, well, oh, very well, cute. Be- so Max has spent the day out in the vineyard. My partner's a, a viticulturalist here in the Yarra Valley. So he, he was very tired, but he's just sort of woken up and started running around my office here. So
1: <laughs> That's right. We love, we love having special guests like that at any <laughs> yeah. point. Tom um, Forrest and Max Forrest. I like it.
2: He'll um, be a cannabis puppy one day. He'll be running around the farms in Australia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, it's great. Uh, in terms of, um, I do have a question. In terms of um, just going back to the background, real quick. Um, now that we've had that kind of breakup in, in the in the, um, in the in the mood, um, you your interest in medicinal cannabis was spiked by. Is there a personal story there that I uh, detected earlier? Would you be able to tell us about that?
2: Yeah. So obviously i went to university and i studied at the university of canberra so i was exposed to cannabis in all its beauty at a younger (laughs) age but then shortly after finishing my undergrad degree my mum actually got quite crook and was was living just north of sydney at the time and the the medication she was on was it's quite similar to chemotherapy it just caused her to be bedridden and really. Uh, not in a good place physically she was she was struggling and I didn't realize it at the time but I'd I'd go up to see her and uh, she'd get out the volcano vaporizer and she'd consume a balloon and the the reaction was incredible like she went from being on on the couch or on the bed really like not having a good time to being able to get up and make food and clean up around the house and sort of be herself again so that in my mind it sort of just changed the game i went from seeing cannabis as something that was consumed at university something to something that had incredible instantaneous benefit and i think it was compounded by the fact that my dog at the time or my mum's dog was also crook so i'd go out there and it was a really uh it was quite emotional it was hard to see both my mum and my dog having a tough time and then mum would get up and uh, the dog would see mum get up and he'd run around. And so it was, um, yeah, it, it was quite powerful. And like uh, the happy end of the story is mum's fully recovered. Now, um, she's actually working for a cannabis company up in Queensland. Uh, she's oh, got wow. a history in the, well, she used to be an administrator for uh, the general practice or rural general practices, rural doctors associations and things. And uh, so she's now moved into the medical cannabis space as well. So, It'll be nice when I start seeing her at conferences, and it'll all come full circle. That is, yeah, you would have to be
0: the first, maybe mother-son duo in the uh, in the industry. But that's that's such a great great ending to the story, and just you know, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter how many of these stories I hear when I just hear that description that you gave about the improvement in quality of life. It's um, you know, it's any wonder that uh, that we still even have doctors who have patients that have failed at a first line and, and are just looking for something looking for an alternative um, just to try to see if it works And we know it doesn't work for everyone but um, yeah it's, uh, it's such a, a powerful story thanks for sharing um, I'm going to steer the direction of this conversation now to the agronomy expertise of yours Tom so I, I'm interested I imagine part of your um, world tour for cannabis was to, to go around the world and pick up a few um, tips and tricks what um, what can you tell us about uh, yeah the challenges um, of of being a cultivator um, what does a day in the life of a cultivator look like we just love to hear that perspective because we haven't had too many um, we've had a few showers on the podcast but we haven't had that many growers so uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you on this one um,
2: yeah I guess it's it's a deep question and I guess uh, from the outset we just have to look at different cultivation methodologies suiting different commodities. Uh, growing a product for a, a CBD isolate or a distillate is going to look very different to growing for manicured flower. Uh, growing in different regulatory environments is also going to affect the methodology. But I guess it's uh, the commonalities I think come from sort of generic agricultural problems like issues faced with pest and disease, uh, I think is number one, regardless of whether it's outdoor or indoor or controlled environment in a glass house, everyone is struggling with pest and disease. And I think there's, there's been some breeders and I think you guys are familiar with people that have done good breeding over the years, mm-hmm. but that's the rarity. There's the majority of breeding over the years has been loosely based on potency at, at best. A lot of the time it's been subjective um, almost breeding as an art form as opposed to breeding as a science and so as a result majority of the cultivars that exist they they don't have the pest and disease tolerance they don't have the drought or the stress tolerance they're prone to hermaphrodism they're prone to problems and so i guess the the big issues i saw in my fellowship were most facilities struggled with powdery mildew Uh, that was that was rampant and just in some facilities almost uh, not recoverable. Like the, their facilities were wiped out. Um, botrytis gray mold was pretty common as well. And then I guess the the sort of differentiation is a lot of the pests and diseases are location specific. So people don't know what they don't know. Mm. They they set up a facility or they set up a farm in a location. But they don't know what the local pest pressures are going to be. They don't know what the local diseases or what the the climatic extremes are going to be and they don't prepare suitable hardware or risk mitigation strategies to, to combat that. Um, I think the big thing we're all really striving for is uniformity. We're looking for that, that pharmaceutical level of consistency uh, and that's not easy to achieve especially when it comes to, to developing for a manicured flower market and particularly in the pharmaceutical space. If, if a doctor is prescribing a flower and we've seen this problem in Australia already. They, they prescribe a flower. The patient has a great time. They, they find it helps with their, their particular ailment. And they find a, a cultivar or a strain that suits their their physical needs. And then that cultivar or that strain isn't available for another nine months. It sells out too quickly. Or they haven't got the ability to replicate that consistently. I think that's a, that's a big challenge around the world. Um, and I guess having a point of difference as well. Like I think growing for a, a potency, growing for a COA is a very short sighted approach. We're only just scratching the surface of the, the true value of an entourage of, of real terpene profiles, of, of real expression of phenotype, as opposed to this is 30% THC, like. Yeah, correct. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I was just saying, Very. we completely agree that's the philosophy that, that we have as well. And I think you know going back to that that powdery mildew thing you're talking about, so for example, if you've got um, you know traditionally a sativa uh, strains that were grown in very humid climates that would be uh, well adapted to say, um, you know weathering uh, mold, for example, and then they're mixed with a kind of indica strain that is comes from a, a drier or arid region, such as like Afghanistan, for example you're now breeding out that kind of immunity to, to mold, for example. And so most of the strains we see out there are some kind of hybrid. Um, And, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's wreaking havoc when you're just getting seeds from X company and just giving it a shot. And you, you, you know, you're saying, Oh, people like indica, let's put that in the ground, but let's do that in, you know, Queensland somewhere where that, that, the climate is just not appropriate for, for you know an indica dominant strain necessarily or and even even then you have other other issues that will pop up as a result of the the soil the the temperature the wind you know and then the growing capabilities of the individuals that that, that are doing it as well so yeah i completely concur with what you were saying
2: it's it's a what's there's a there's a few sort of controversial debates of about- about sort of the naming standards of of Indica, Sativa and what is what, but you're right, everyone's everyone's playing with hybrids at the moment and they've been hybridized, not necessarily for the right reasons. Whereas if we go back to true true landrace genetics and I'm talking landrace as in a time and place. So uh, a Vietnamese variety from the nineties is gonna look very different to a a variety that's grown in Vietnam now. So a landrace from a, a time and place has incredible potential to combat a lot of these common problems that people are having, but most seed banks are not providing these. And then you get the influence of sort of the fashion of strains or cultivars coming out of the US where just because someone says this is a variety that the consumer wants doesn't mean that that's a a good variety to grow and particularly not for a universal, there is no universal growing method. So there's no real cultivar that's going to suit that. Is this like a
0: case if like a Snoop Dogg or something endorses a particular product over there and then suddenly the whole supply chain gets told, all right, we're doing this cultivar. Everyone hands on deck, let's do it. And everyone's like, what? I, I, I don't know what, what to do.
2: <laughs> exactly. It's it's supply chain versus value chain. You've got, uh, yeah, rap Hollywood influencer X comes along and says, this is what you should be consuming now. So all of the consumers making it a value chain, go to their local dispensary list or even their, their doctor, because doctors are now prescribing based on names of cultivars as opposed to true profile. And they say, I want this because that's what they heard on Instagram or on the YouTubes. Mm. <laughs> and that's when the dispensary goes to the farmers and says, this is what we, we want to buy. Um, and it's it's customer driven as opposed to being driven by something that would lead to the success of that cultivation facility or allowing those farmers to really express their own cultivation method or find something that suits their location. Yeah, so it's it's a bit sort of cart before the horse at the moment. But um, I, I've, 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 I've yeah. Oh, sorry, you go, Tom. I, was, I think consumers are slowly getting more educated. That's that's the takeaway. I think there is. There's a niche market of people that are starting to know what they want, how to consume it Uh, across sort of medical right through to adult use. It's people are getting smarter about their decision-making and their purchasing. Which is actually, yeah, a bit of
0: a paradox about where we're at in Australia because, because it's treated under this framework for unapproved therapeutic goods, according to the TGA, there's all these restrictions around information sharing directly with um, with patients and so it's, it's I think Australian patients are a little bit in the dark about I mean they could be having something fantastic that's locally grown um, really good quality but it's it's difficult whereas I feel in other places parts around the world where you have different regulatory approaches that allow that flow of information um, people can become more educated and um, yeah I just I worry that Australians are being kept in the dark just by the constraints of, of a legislative framework that um, obviously has actually been around uh, yeah this is my lawyer angle here but it's you know the, the treatment of un- unapproved therapeutic goods is um, predates the introduction of medicinal cannabis that's it's a been special access schemes existed long before that but um, but turning to just different approaches that you observed one of the things that people talk about here in Australia, or at least that, that I've heard from a few people is, you know, I'd love to get involved in the industry, but I just want to have my own little grow operation and then supply to maybe a bigger fish or something like that. That type of uh, growing um, goes on in the US, I'm told, like it's it's more accessible for mum and dads to maybe start their own farm. Can you maybe share your observations about what you saw with that type of model versus what we seem to have in Australia, which is ostensibly, and I'm maybe a bit tongue in cheek here. It's almost like you're not allowed to grow in Australia unless you are an ASX listed company with hundred million dollars <laughs> and you've earmarked a site in somewhere regional um, where you're going to save all the jobs and, and all of this type of thing. It's, these huge amounts of investments in, in these big projects in, in Australia, it's, it's quite a contrast. So I, I'm interested to hear about those observations that you had from from your time.
2: I guess the, the other end of the spectrum is you could move to Canberra and have two plants in the backyard at 150 grams wet weight and 50 grams of dry material <laughs> in itself is...
0: Which I'm sure Was that your setup when you were at the uh, University of Canberra or are you talking about the recent... Uh, <laughs> there. I
2: lived on campus at university, so I didn't even have a backyard to uh, experiment oh uh, sort of predated the the recent state legislation there.
1: Oh, I've so been, a
0: grow box and some lights. <laughs> inside the quadrangle or wherever. It is.
2: <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess it's, it's a good question because you're right. The Australian industry right now is very much set up to be i think come back to that dangerous plant mentality mentality where it's it's resigned to big industry big pharmaceutical companies people that have done backdoor listings with mining companies people that have funded and linked to big pharma or other big uh, sort of big economics industries they're the ones that are really available and have the funding to get into the market because of the delays on licensing because of the challenges associated Uh, I think there's a few places around the world. Come on, buddy, chill. Um, (laughs) There's a few places around the world that have a better approach to it. I think you look at the US and it's state by state. Some states have have home cultivation, have smaller licenses being issued. Uh, Federally, Canada's just brought in their microprocessor uh, functions and that's that's a step in the right direction. But as I understand it, the microprocessors still need to be linked to an LP. So there is right. some, some hurdles there. And they've also still concurrently got the MMAR or MMPR framework going, where your doctor can prescribe for you to grow cannabis. So uh, one of the guys that I met early in my fellowship, he had a prescription to grow 100 grams per day, I think it was. Wow. And yeah, because you could jerry it a little bit. Like you could, you could pay your doctor a little bit extra for the prescription, and rather than the doctor prescribing a gram per day for flour uh, to be consumed as flour, you'd say, oh, "I need to make topicals, or I need to juice it." And so, for that reason, I I need ten plants or a hundred plants. I'm gonna
0: need seven ton per quarter, um, but uh, I need to yeah. juice, juice
2: it all <laughs> for all it's got. Yeah, I've got to make shampoo, so like I need. <laughs> yeah. uh, a fair whack yeah
1: you need a few times for sure (laughs)
2: exactly so so that sort of multiple frameworks operating at the same time was a a bit bit shanty but some people thrived in that gray market and and power to them yeah um i think spain has an interesting model where they've got a really beautiful uh safe consumption uh the uh, the social club model where people can be referred by friends sign up to be in a social club uh that provides safe consumption but the supply chain doesn't really exist for the cannabis a lot of the time either falls from the sky or uh, is grown in sort of semi-grey market environments. So I don't think any country right now has a a true framework that allows sort of mum and pop people to get into the industry and I guess to take it full circle the, the people that are trying to get into the industry at this stage my advice to them is it frustratingly comes back to formal education, like studying production horticulture, studying uh, ag science. And when doing that, target it at fast growing annuals. So I made a point when I was doing my production horticulture course to ask my teacher, how would this look with cannabis? And he was a traditional conservative uh, male who wouldn't ever admit to benefiting from cannabis. And so the whole way through my study, it would awkwardly go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And so a few of us in the class at the time were studying with the, the end goal of wanting to get into the cannabis space. And so we'd, we'd nag and we'd hassle and we'd make him ask these questions and then he'd start talking to other people at the facility. And at the end of the, when I finished my course, he actually came up to me and said, look, I've, I've got really bad psoriasis and I really, I want to find a way to fix this. <laughs> Can, can you help link me with someone that can provide me with a topical cream that might help? Um, and this was around the early stages of the federal legalization. So at the time it was, like, man, I would love to help you, but there's not a lot available right now. Uh, I hope if he has since found a solution for that, that's cannabis based, that'd be a lovely little irony for me. But yeah, maybe,
1: maybe if you helped me more in class, I'd be able to help you a bit, you know, <laughs> now, but. Uh... Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it is, it's also nice to see the industry as a whole is growing um, to make it more available for people, sort of corporate and individuals to enter the market. So the Hydroponic Farmers Federation and the Protected Cropping Association in Australia, both of their conferences have uh, cannabis or medical cannabis uh, train, like a whole se- series of speakers, at the events looking at medicinal cannabis. Um, the upcoming Protected Cropping Association conference has speakers from a number of different cultivators across Australia that are there to talk about cannabis. So they they, they see the benefit of the green rush and they, they think it's another big lucrative industry, which it could be, but at the end of the day, it's just good that they're talking about it. They're getting in mm-hmm. a room full of traditionally conservative farmers and they're saying, look, this is an industry we need to embrace and having the, like the Agricultural Institute of Australia and these big industry bodies on board is the first step to making the, the smaller farms, more accessible, letting Old at Mornington Hydroponics or whatever it happens to be, start to look at converting his farm into a new crop and having another revenue stream. So it, it's starting here, but it's, um, did, yeah. Do it ever need...
0: get to like uh, what we've seen with viticulture um, and how they have now separate courses for that? Do you think one day, maybe in the not too distant future, we might have specific cannabis agronomy courses being offered at a tertiary level oh
2: definitely like that's you've seen university of guelph in canada has a cannabis undergraduate degree uh and the the waiting period i think it's 18 months that people are waiting to get into that course there's a line out the door and around the campus for people to study cannabis agronomy you should start Uh,
0: the um the academy of forest i reckon and uh, (laughs) you'd be the dean or the (laughs) i have tried
2: to teach it to a few educational facilities across victoria and they're all open to the idea and we've got a whole bunch of the industry into into a room together and started the conversation Hmm. but there's still there's a bit of hesitancy even one one group that i tried to get doing a a cannabis production horticulture training uh, i I wanted them to set up a hemp facility on campus and and so students could have hands-on experience in cultivating hemp they've been still had the opinion that it's uh, isn't that dangerous? We can't grow. We can't grow drugs on campus. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, on. yeah.
1: What, what there's about more, there's, those, um, there's more testing that goes on on campus than anywhere else. We're about.
2: Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> uh, uni students have been doing R and D with cannabis for decades, millennia, <laughs> perhaps. No, I um I was going to ask though. Given where we're at now on that front, you have people that are coming into cannabis growing from um other more established agronomy areas who i don't know how to ask this any other way who's the best grower like if they're coming in from a different type of produce or whatever Hmm. like who who, who does it better
2: so there's (laughs) i'm sorry so there's two two different factors that i see really creating this perfect melting pot in the middle uh, if we look at we're growing flowers for uniformity the most uniform flowers that are currently grown is the cut flower industry so look at chrysanthemums poinsettias marigolds and bunnings um, so people that have that cut flower experience in production horticulture that that's a really invaluable skill set and the best facilities I saw around the world and some of the most uniform crops were, uh, groups like Med Relief in Canada. Um, a good friend of mine, Juan, he came from chrysanthemums and poinsettias and he steered that facility to be the most uniform, consistently producing facility across Canada. Med Relief has a, an incredible reputation for that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, and you touched on it briefly before, is the viticulture space. So I see viticulture as this incredibly wise intergenerational knowledge where you've got uh, fathers to sons or mothers to daughters passing down knowledge they, they understand if we grow a pinot mv7 clone on an east-facing volcanic soil with a load of fruiting wire then the flavor profile is going to come out like this and it'll have methoxypyrazine characteristics and deep mouth feel they really understand the relationship between genotype environment to phenotype to end produce and if, if viticulture is this wise grandparent character that passes this knowledge down through generations and across countries cannabis is like the unruly cousin that's like i can grow weed under lights and it comes out like terpy as gassy even or maybe like the the toddler that's just like i can grow a plant like we have so much to learn and we're still in our infancy and I and we don't have
0: any old vines in this
2: country yet. <laughs> no, there's some, there's some pretty amazing old varieties up around the Northern Rivers.
0: Uh, sorry, true, true. <laughs> sorry, sorry, not legal.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah not mummy baby madness.
2: Exactly, which is now available from American producers that are selling it back to Australian farms. That's wrong. The, That's, it was originated, pioneered, and developed by hardworking like, black and grey market cultivators over decades and there is a small hint of that sort of family knowledge or that that understanding of their environment and their cultivars and what that will turn into but i guess yeah we're, we're still in such early stages that we can learn from viticulture we can learn from cut flower we can get skill sets and workers from both industries and then hopefully bring it together to have a, a pharmaceutical product but also understand the terroir of cannabis and i think that's a, a bit of a holy grail for me personally
0: Absolutely. Um, no, that's awesome. I, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I, I'm glad to hear that there's a a long queue of people that are wanting to learn all of the um the tips and tricks that that you've been gathering over the last few years. Um, because hopefully, yeah, we'll have just a really good um, base of, of growers in in Australia. It's sort of a maybe maybe it's just our podcast, but we just haven't yeah haven't had too many come on. But, um, but yeah, what, um, what do you think when you look around now at, uh, where the Australian industry is at and what you've seen globally, where do you think we're heading and what needs to be fixed? I know you mentioned before that we need to have faster turnaround time, like the New Zealand ministry of health on, on dealing with licenses. And that's probably a departmental resource issue, but, um, yeah, what are some of the opportunities, the threats that you see in uh, in Australia?
2: I think, like, big big picture, we're, we're missing uh, entire industries. Like, we look at cosmetics, nutraceutical, food and beverage, and the veterinary space. All of these sectors have their own potential mm. industry for growth, and we're strictly going cannabis as a pharmaceutical commodity, and, and it's not. Like, we, Australia has a strong and rich history of consumption of cannabis and there are all these fringe benefits to the cannabis plant and cannabinoids in general that we're just not even looking at. So I think big picture, we need to start opening the door to some of those sectors and allowing people to produce for products outside of the, the TGA, ODC, pharmaceutical regulated model and um, I I like to believe that's not too far away. I think medical cannabis is a little bit of a Trojan horse for the other sectors opening up and Mm. we're starting to see that now where prescriptions are becoming more widely available. Uh, There's forums where people are talking about the different flowers that are being prescribed and the the different attributes of those flowers. And I think that's the the fundamental change that needs to happen. Um, I guess the other aspect is yeah, that, that turnaround time of the Office of Drug Control alongside the the ability for less fit and proper persons to become involved in the industry, I think the, the, the uh, I guess, the barriers to entry they put on individuals at the moment, uh, they, they've created a divide between the existing black and grey market and the, the legitimate space. What, what we've seen in New Zealand, and this comes back to an earlier question, is they've put in place an amnesty. So, if a a cottage cultivator, a black or gray market cultivator, or one of the green fairies has developed a a New Zealand uh, Mount Cook strain, and they've been working on that for decades, they've been breeding and putting in the hard yards their entire life, they can bring that into a licensed facility for a nominal fee. I think it's a couple hundred bucks and you can bring in 20 seeds or 50 clones. So having that amnesty means that you've got companies that are, are functioning medicinal cannabis companies Opening the door to black market breeders and forming alliances with them, and so that already is creating a really good. Like the, the cottage industry there is embracing the medicinal cannabis space much more than here in Australia, where we saw pioneers like Tony Bauer and Jenny Hallam. They got strung out to dry in the early stages of legalization here, and they demonised the caregivers because they they wanted to tie it up for a strictly pharmaceutical sector. I think that's something that we could we could look at revisiting. If we had some form of amnesty where the people that invented Mullumbimby Madness could bring Mullumbimby Madness into the local Northern Ribbon's facilities, then Absolutely. everybody wins. That word
0: amnesty has always resonated with me and I'm sure it resonates with quite a few of our listeners, but that's exactly right. It's it's basically what we've done is we've come in and we've said, all right, well, it's legal now, subject to this sphere of regulation, and anyone who's outside that sphere, sorry, and it's really we need to, it shouldn't have been done, I think, in such a binary fashion, or at least there needs to have been some sort of transitional arrangements um to onboard people that have been a really integral part of the the industry long before Mitch and I came along with uh with Altmed or anything like that. So it's um yeah, there's you know, there are just so many great people that I, I totally agree with you have been um sort of shut out and and they need to be not just brought back into the tent, but given the respect that they deserve for what what they mm. did in um in getting us to where we are now. So um yeah, it's definitely something I'd I'd like to see. Um now I, I can see Mitch in this little tile of my screen and he's champing at the bit to ask the question that we ask a lot of our guests. Um I'm gonna let you fire away with it, Mitch, because it's it's one that you
1: like to ask. I actually had one other question, just based on something else we were talking about earlier, that I wanted to ask Tom. Oh. Um, have you worked with in your um, your uh, lifetime as a grower with land races? Out of curiosity,
2: it's a good question.
1: Um, and can you perhaps, sorry, just for the benefit of some of
0: our listeners, who might not know what a land race is? Can you yeah talk through explain what that. that.
2: Yeah, so i landrace cultivars are a traditional heirloom cultivars that have developed and adapted specifically to a certain location and time of climatic environmental extremes. Uh, and cannabis has an amazing genetic plasticity, so it does adapt very quickly. And so we have landrace cultivars from from Pakistan, from Hindu Kush mountains, from uh, Afghanistan, from Thailand, from Malawi, from Congo. All over the world, cultivars have developed specialized characteristics uh, which have then stabilized and inbred on, uh, upon themselves to develop landrace cultivars. And in honesty, not true landrace genetics, no. So all of what we're currently growing over at Pyro uh, are hybrids. Um, everything that I've sort of hypothetically seen over my years uh, at university and things has always been hybridized. Um, and I guess, I, I know I've got good friends in the US and in Canada that do have an incredible genetic library. Uh, and there are people like your uncle who have done amazing work in creating a genetic library, but I personally haven't had the, the, the pleasure or the, the privilege of, of being able to get a, a, a Thai land race from the seventies or eighties or a, a variety from Congo, from uh, past time because that's the thing a land race is a place and time and that's Mm. something that's quite special is it can't be repeated what we find in these locations now is different to what was there 10 20 30 50 years ago so Mm. unfortunately not yet it's one of the things i'm quite excited about as legalization comes to the front is groups can start bringing these amazing genetic libraries out from wherever they happen to keep them Mm. And start bringing them into the light and show what the, the real benefit is of growing something that is a little bit different and isn't just a 30% THC. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that's something that we can maybe talk about after the, the podcast. There's uh, <laughs> some plan <laughs> races available around well, there. It'd be like getting a little package in the mail. It's like... No, 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 no. No, no, sorry. I'm not talking about. <laughs> I'm
0: just saying in the future, all legally sanctioned phytosanitary certificates, but it's like... Bang, here you go. Here's Timbuktu Buck special from 1983. Like, <laughs> like it's um the future looks good. There's gonna be a lot of um, yeah, exciting genetic work being done. I know that um I think La Trobe uh, and the Victorian government has agribio. there. they're doing some genetic research here in in Victoria, but um But I think there's plenty, plenty more to be done. Um, But I'll I'll leave that to Mitch's um, discreet conversation that he hopes to have with
1: you post the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, you go.
2: One of the really interesting things I think that's holding up the Australian space is uh, most groups now have to source their genetics from a registered uh, or licensed grower around the world. So whether it comes from an LP in Canada uh, or several groups across Europe, that limits the, the genetic pool significantly. And that's the thing that Canada initially had an amnesty for a very short period of time where people who were breeding or had genetic collections could bring them in, register them in a federally legal facility, and then move them around between facilities and across different groups. And that's what I think New Zealand has this amazing benefit. If seeds fall from the sky in New Zealand and land in a facility, then they can register them in a federally legal facility. And all of a sudden they go from black market to white market genetics with a non-compete, yeah, cool. And that's yeah. something that I think has incredible benefit for some of the pioneers that have been working outside the legal systems over the last few decades that have done amazing groundwork, traveled the world and collected cultivars that no one else has anything like. Mm. Of
0: opportunity. If I put on my um, Australian government cap here, do you reckon one of the reasons is that they're just trying to sort of say, well, you know, we're responsible for quarantining, um, you know, biosecurity for all um, produce that comes into the country and we need to ensure that it doesn't carry any dangerous. Anyway, sorry, I'm just trying to think yeah, like uh, this. Uh,
2: biosecurity is, is a big part of it, especially Australia New Zealand, island nations with incredible native flora. We, we need to protect that, and biosecurity is paramount. But then in the same breath, you can get seeds, treat them with hot water treatment, fungicide treatments. You can you can do certain procedures hmm. that allow seeds to come from areas that aren't necessarily as safe but are essentially washed on the way in. Yeah. Um, so I think biosecurity is one aspect to it. I think in honesty, it was just part of that wanting to have a divide between the existing black market. Uh, right mm. now there's there's over two billion dollars of cannabis, and that's a conservative figure. Uh, two billion dollars worth of black market cannabis consumed. So there's there's thousands of cultivars that exist. There's there's growers from Cairns to Tasmania that are operating outside the legal space. And as a way of saying you're not involved in the current medicinal cannabis space, they said all genetics have to come from a licensed facility or a licensed producer abroad. Mm. So I, I think it came back to that, that dangerous plant mentality. I didn't want the ones for the drugs. They wanted the ones for the pharmaceutical yeah, drugs.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's also I just hearing you speak and, and getting your global insights that you picked up from that tour. It's like we really should have, um, I guess, a global advisory board, um, at least to my knowledge. Maybe that such a board exists, but I, I'm not... Familiar with a level of regular interaction between various um, medicinal cannabis-related regulators um, and policymakers on a global level, and really, it makes sense in that you have um, the all these countries would have at a point in time um, been strictly signed up to the 1967 uh, treaty or convention on um, narcotics um, and scheduled substances and each country has in its own way derogated from that strict adherence um, starting point and it's all manifested in different ways in different jurisdictions and it'd be really good to have someone like you at the table sort of going, you know what? That approach in Canada with micro- process it works, but they shouldn't be tied to an LP. And you know what? This part in us in New Zealand is great. And yeah, there shouldn't be any more than twelve weeks as a general rule of thumb for getting a license approved and just so on and so forth. But um but yeah, anyway, I just when I hear you speak, I keep thinking about how everyone's in a silo and we should all be um be actually sharing knowledge about what actually works.
2: That's one of the things that the Churchill trust does really, really well is that their, their whole goal is to look at what's happening around the world, take that information and bring it back to the, to benefit the Australian industry and economy. So it's not to, to develop my own IP or, uh, and, and other Churchill fellows have done their own studies on so many different topics from uh, one of the ladies who was doing a fellowship at the same time as me, it was looking at bringing dogs into the courtroom so witnesses would feel more comfortable. And now we have dogs in courtrooms and witnesses feel more comfortable. Uh, yeah. Another one was looking at sort of gender discrimination and sexual education for children and how that should look and how it looks around the world. There has also been a Churchill Fellow who's looked at uh, cannabis regulations, frameworks, and pathways to patient access and taken those lessons to publish a fellowship report. So, Reese Colin? No, it's, uh, no, no. no. uh <laughs> no, Reese just knows everything about it's everything anyway. So-
0: yeah, um, probably supervise this guy's tree. Uh, anyway, um, no, I'm, yeah, I would. I would actually, if I ever had to go to court, um, I would want Max there. Um, just putting out.
1: Are you be going?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um All right, Mitch. If right. you've got any other questions banked up, and we have taken a lot of Tom's time, and I can already just call it now, we're definitely going to be doing a follow up at least to this one. I'm not even going to ask Tom because I just know that so much has come out of this that we're just going to continue to have so many questions. Um, and you've just got such a breadth of knowledge, but I'll let Mitch ask this question
1: that we have asked quite a few of our guests. Okay. Legalization, CBD, THC, is it going to happen? And if so,
2: when? If you'd asked me pre New Zealand referendum, I would have been a lot more positive. Mm. Uh, I, so think, I guess
0: the question is, how influential is the Church of Scientology? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. Oh,
2: man. That tells my head in. Like, honestly, you look at the, the whole Say No to Dope campaign. Uh, <laughs> well, don't they have those um, stress tests? Maybe
0: they're just worried. Like part of their um, recruitment activities. <laughs> yeah, people won't be
1: stressed anymore. Yeah, people won't be stressed. <laughs> <laughs> they they they're they're really, <laughs> know, it's really counter to their narrative. The Let's ask word. Tom Cruise on Twitter, maybe he'll be <laughs>
2: yeah but uh, it's i think it's inevitable Uh, i I genuinely believe there's too much economic benefit there's too much societal benefit there's too much uh cultural movement behind the cannabis industry pushing in the right direction for legalization not to happen soon Mm. Uh, how it looks in terms of consumption uh dispensary models or whatever it happens to be i'm unsure but i'm I'm hoping within the next five years we see major change. We we, we have politicians like uh, Michael Patterson, Peter Patterson, who oh,
0: yeah. fraud in
2: mm-hmm. the, the ACT state laws for hemp cultivation. Uh, we've got politicians over in New Zealand like Chloe, Chloe Swarbrick, and even Jacinda Ardern publicly advocating for uh, a legal framework. So I think it's only a matter of time as other older, more traditional conservative politicians find their place in retirement, <laughs> and younger, more progressive, open-minded politicians come through and see the, not only the voter benefit, but the economic uh, and generally political benefit of a legalization, then we'll start to see major changes. So I mean, the, the wall is falling. Uh, and I like to think it'll be within the next five years, we'll have some sort of Maybe it won't be fully functional, might be semi-functional, but hmm. something will be ideally something will happen within five years. But
0: and I, I think we also those ACT laws I think should be just tweaked slightly so that we can, I mean we call it Parliament House. So if you're allowed a home grow situation in the ACT, I'd really <laughs> like to say maybe sort of right at the foot of the uh, the budget tree in the courtyard at Parliament House just a nice little cannabis crop um, going there. And I think that would perhaps, yeah, persuade, I think it would actually have a, a myriad of, of positive effects on, um, on, yeah, on so much of what is wrong with Canberra. But um,
1: yeah, who knows, we might just, it, maybe it's just leading a horse to water in that sense. Two plants in Canberra, that would not work so well for you, Tom. You'd only be allowed half of a plant, really, if you were gonna get 50 grams of dried flower. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's the, the, the whole fundamental flaw in that framework is 150 grams wet to 50 grams dry from two plants outdoors. Um, anyone that's ever grown plants outdoors, I think, with any level of success, would find it quite difficult to keep a plant to that size. You'd be you'd be chopping the top off. You'd be defoliating. You'd, you'd be doing a lot packing, of hacking at it with hedge trim. You'd, you'd be juicing a lot. <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> <along> the <way. laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, brilliant well I think a couple of plants from the house would be lovely oh, wouldn't
0: it be that that would be the turning point I really feel like for so long um, you know we really have been languishing in the shadows of, of um, our little brother in New Zealand or little sister and I think that would at least reassert that we're just as cool as them even though they voted no on their referendum <laughs> um, yeah I, I don't know I, I want to say that <laughs> No, very good. Well, we will, I think, wrap it up for now. I say for now oh, but no. we're gonna. Um, I think we'll have you back, Tom, if uh, if you're agreeable to it. Of course, um, but we'd, um, yeah, we'd really like to uh, to do this again. It's just been so, um, yeah, so much insight.
2: Yeah. Sorry, uh, my Wi-Fi decided that enough was enough on our conversation. No, no, that's uh, all good. That, that's uh,
1: telling. It's perfect timing because, yeah, we're, we're just wrapping up on this one. But it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you as always. And thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Uh, thanks very much, guys. It's, it's always lovely and insightful to chat. And um, I'm sure we've got a few follow-up conversations to keep rolling. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: All right. Well, until next time, take care. We'll speak soon. Thanks, thanks to Tom. You.
1: Thanks, Andrew.
0: Thanks, Andrew.